The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is helping businesses and people all around the world harness the power of the sun. SunGrow's cutting-edge technology for residential, commercial, and large-scale energy generation uses state-of-the-art inverters to integrate solar into the grid and into your home and your business and to harvest and store this abundant energy. If you want to find out more about SunGrow's inverters, go to sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the world. CorePower is dedicated to widespread energy storage adoption while keeping manufacturing domestic in order to stabilize and protect the U.S. grid. Find out more about CorePower's modules, which are now on the market, at corepower.com, K-O-R-E, corepower.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. In a year when clean energy and clean vehicle jobs were supposed to increase by some 175,000, we are down by a half a million jobs. We'll tell you why and explain the numbers. What will reverse the decline? Then, did New Jersey just pass the most sweeping environmental justice law in the country? The new law will mean big changes for industrial sites and the neighborhoods that often feel their worst impacts. And last, what about all that nice flat water in hydropower reservoirs? Could we just float solar panels on it? The Department of Energy says we could, and it would actually produce massive amounts of electricity. We are back with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. It's good to see you again, Catherine. Catherine is back after a uh, hiatus. She's the policy expert of the group and the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. How are you doing? I am fine. Thank you so much. And thanks so much to Melissa for subbing in last week. And I just want to give like a little bit of an explanation because I've been coming and going with a lot of things. I've had to cancel uh, appearances at a bunch of speaking engagements and have not been responding to all of the nice young people reaching out asking for a career counsel that uh, Jigger and I seem to really enjoy doing. And I just want to apologize. But one of my kids has been hospitalized for a few weeks. And um, that's been taking up a lot of my focus because he's, he's going to be on the right track here. Um, but we've been, as a family, having to kind of do a little triage on that to make sure that we cover everything we need to cover. And I just want to let folks know. Yeah, well, we're all pulling for you and your family. And I just got to say that Catherine has been devoting her time to her son, but she also checks in and is also, you know, talking to people and doing her research for the show. So it's really extraordinary the amount of work that you put into the show and, and the research that you do to make sure that these conversations, you know, are are really uh, giving people the best information. So it's just kudos to you for balancing that. Well, thanks. Well, you know, I love this. <laughs> well, it's a good balance to my approach. <laughs> Which is what? <laughs> No, I actually reach out to people as well. I, I rely on Ingrid to do all the work for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I start reaching out to people. That's Jigger Shaw. He is the uh, president and co-founder of Generate Capital, and he is our other co-host. Let's talk about jobs first. Uh, we talked about the dismal jobs picture just after the pandemic upended the economy, and it's time for a check-in now. So the Environmental Business Group E2 has its latest analysis of clean jobs out. 
These reports look at positions in energy efficiency, clean vehicles, and clean energy. It shows jobs in the U.S. are down by nearly half a million since the pandemic. The jobs are trickling back now. Each month, we're seeing a few thousand more people hired or rehired. It's just really slow. Meanwhile, Deloitte has been looking at jobs in the old energy sector, and it finds the collapse in oil demand and in prices spurred the fastest rate of oil and chemical industry layoffs in history, about 107,000 jobs eliminated between March and August. It predicts that 70% of those jobs may not come back by 2022, if at all. So the last time we checked in on the clean energy jobs picture was in early May. The figures had just come in. They were pretty devastating. The pandemic had caused 600,000 jobs to be shed. Now here we are in October. It looks like maybe 100,000 of those jobs have come back. Um, That's not a lot. Why hasn't more work resumed? Jigger, do these numbers sound right to you for losses in clean energy, cars, fuels, efficiency? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's something that we have talked about on the show. I'm not quite sure you know, how to respond to it, except to say that I think that the way in which our elected officials at the federal level have dealt with COVID has been terrible. And I don't really know how to get it solved, right? I mean, the bottom line is, is that the work that people are doing in most of these losses in the clean energy industry and energy efficiency, although there are material losses and renewables and clean fuels in other places, um, you know, what they really need is some sort of stimulus package to put a lot of these folks to work, right? I mean, one of the challenges that we have is that, um, is it, you know, state budgets, uh, city budgets, et cetera, have been decimated, right? A lot of sales tax revenue that folks expected to have uh, didn't materialize because people weren't eating out, people weren't doing all the things that they normally do that generate these sales tax revenues, and those budget holes get filled by the federal government. The state and city officials really have to balance their budgets because they can't print money. Well, the federal government has the ability to print money, and that's where the money's supposed to come from. And, you know, the House passed a bill, I think, that, that provided this kind of relief five months ago, and they still haven't come to resolution with the Senate or the White House. And so we're in a situation where um, everyone's waiting around. It's a lot of folks in our industry that are waiting around um, at home because their jobs haven't come back yet. So what's going on here? Is it that demand for projects and products has slipped and so there aren't as many people servicing those projects? Or is it that these people literally can't do their jobs because of, of health concerns? I talked to Barry Cinnamon of Cinnamon Solar, Cinnamon Energy now, and you know he said that certainly when COVID hit at first, everything shut down. So just nobody was working. But he said that really starting in May, they saw a real uptick back for rooftop solar and there was a big backlog. And what they've noticed, of course, in California is everybody's electric bills going up because people are working from home and using a lot more energy there. People are not in offices, so commercial installations are not increasing as high as residential. But in California, of course, you have those blackouts, whether you know because of energy issues or because of wildfire issues. And so folks are really, really focused on not only do I need solar, but I need solar and a battery. And they have this big backlog of projects. And he said they, they started chugging right along, but then were held up with 
permitting because the folks who were issuing permits were not able to get those done in a timely way. There was a big backlog because they couldn't get into their offices. He said it's gradually going better, but he thinks it will be really a good year next year because they'll still have the tax credit and things will be working much more smoothly. And he says, particularly for the residential side, he said utility scale doesn't seem to have been impacted at all, but the commercial space is still a little iffy just because people aren't getting back into commercial buildings as quickly. So the biggest impact has been to the energy efficiency space. Jigger, what's going on there? Well, I think there's a couple of things, as you suggested. Um, One is, I don't think there's a lot of residential homeowners that want someone, you know, in their house, like sort of doing energy efficiency. So that has made that slightly more problematic in terms of being, being able to bring that back. The other challenge, though, is that a lot of the energy efficiency that gets done is in the mush market, right, which is municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. And these are all the four areas where they're hemorrhaging cash from their budgets. And, you know, even if they have money because it's an ESCO contract and it's Johnson Controls or somebody else that's actually uh, paying for it, I think a lot of folks are saying this is just not one of our top five priorities to do this month, right? And so um, so a lot of that work isn't getting done unless a contract had been signed a year earlier and then people are finishing that work while the buildings are empty. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's it's devastating. And, and when you think about the accomplishments in this sector, right? I mean, this sector, energy efficiency in particular, has been able to help keep electricity consumption in this country flat, completely flat since 2003, right? We need them to keep doing that through 2050, right? Like that's how we're going to lick this thing. And so losing these people and these skills is, you know, really problematic. Yeah, I reached out to Mary Shoemaker from ACEEE, who did a bunch of workforce development research. And and she also hooked me in with BW researcher um, Philip Jordan, who said the community that has been the most hit, of course, by the pandemic and by these layoffs and unemployment, which we have discussed before, are Black and Latinx, especially. And um, the unemployment rates for them have not changed while they've declined a bit more for Caucasian workers um, in clean energy and then economy-wide as well. And so it's really exacerbated this big existing diversity problem in the energy efficiency industry. So there's a real effort now, and ACEEE is going to be releasing a report at the end of this month on how to build a more inclusive energy efficiency workforce, You know, hiring minority and women-owned firms, and really getting those people back to work who are also, you know, potentially living in areas where they're going to have be more susceptible to COVID with certain conditions we'll talk about later in the show. But that is a community that, that they're also trying to bring in and increase the employment numbers for. A clear set of priorities for a potential Biden administration, for sure. Let's turn to fossil energy now, where there's always a boom and bust. Deloitte says layoffs have never come so hard and so fast as they have this year. We've been talking about the future of the industry, saying that you know many of these jobs could come back as people go back to driving and consuming as usual. Were we wrong? Are we are we talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are just not going back to work in the oil sector? Yeah, the sector is really pegged to the price of oil. So at $45 a barrel, you could get a 30% recovery, but $35 a barrel, you'd only get 3% recovery. For every dollar a barrel difference in oil, there are 3,000 jobs at stake. So it's all hooked to the price of oil. So why then 
Jigger, have we seen five times more job losses in clean energy than in oil and gas as of now? Well, I think we just have to make sure that we categorize the data well. I think when you think about oil field services, which is the part of the business, which is around drilling for oil, finding oil uh, and pulling it out of the ground, they have been decimated, right? There's only about 180,000 people who work in that space, and they've lost about half their jobs, a little bit more than half their jobs, right? So so I think that that place has been decimated. And the same thing's true in the renewable energy and energy efficiency business, right? It's, it's, it's the people who are actively constructing and doing that have had the largest job losses because they've been delayed. I think the people who are working on maintenance, right, the people who are working in bringing you know, oil and gas to your home or to your local gas station or that kind of stuff are still employed. So when the oil and gas industry says, you know, we employ direct jobs like 1.4 million people and we've only lost 100,000. Well, that's because they lost all those people in the production side of the business and the folks working at the refineries and the folks working in pipelines and the folks working in gas stations um, still have their jobs because people are still driving, maybe maybe a little bit less than they were before, but they're still driving. So like, I think the same thing's true in our sectors. The maintenance jobs continue to grow, but in our sector, because we're a young sector, those are a smaller percentage of the total jobs of our industry. Yeah, and I would say there are other factors that in the long term are going to point to even further reduction in oil and gas jobs. One is that there are not as many petroleum engineers graduating from universities, so 15 to 21% fewer than there used to be. Also, 50% of the oil and gas workforce is what you would call tenured, so in five to seven years, they will be retiring. That's a lot of the workforce. Um, There was a survey done in the North Sea of oil and gas workers, and over 80% said they would consider switching to renewable energy jobs if they're given the appropriate training and support, this just transition to get get folks to switch over from fossil to clean energy jobs. And certainly the trend lines are showing that in the long run, clean energy is going to win out on the jobs front. Coming up, we're going to talk about a really important new law in New Jersey, and then solar plus hydro. First, though, a quick word about our supporters of this show. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow makes inverters for solar and storage, as well as everything to operate those components efficiently and within your budget. SunGrow products integrate seamlessly into existing grids. The components are also easy to set up. You can complete your setup via SunGrow's website or the app. And SunGrow uh, inverters are fully compatible with newer bifacial solar modules. They monitor changes in sunlight intensity and automatically adjust. This results in, of course, higher energy yield and more income for your project. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demands of the energy storage market. Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. And it's going to be operational soon, and it's going to be 1 million square feet with 12 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. And it's also going to rely on a cogeneration plant, which will provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. Core Power's newly commissioned 2 gigawatt hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers. Go find out more and check them out at corepower.com. K-O-R-E, corepower.com. For decades, communities of color and poor communities have fought for recognition of the concept of cumulative impact. 
permitting agencies routinely consider only the pollution that will come from one new facility rather than considering the pollution and health burdens that communities already carry from years of racist siting decisions. Cumulative Impact says you have to take the whole existing situation into consideration when you consider a new permit application. Communities have had some successes. In some places, officials do have to consider the additional pollution from a new chrome plating facility or sewage treatment plant or power plant before they issue a permit in a hard-hit neighborhood. But now New Jersey environmental justice activists may have scored the most far-reaching law yet in the country. Last month, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed a law that will list communities that are overburdened, and it will require officials to deny permits if a new facility or a renewal of a permit would have a disproportionate impact on one of those communities. It's the only law that we're aware of where the denial is mandatory if the effect is disproportionate. So, Catherine... What is this law? If a company wants to cite a meat rendering plant or a wrecking yard or a chemical plant in New Jersey now, what will they have to do that's different? Yes, they have quite a process to go through and they will likely be denied a permit if they are in any, near any community that could have a negative impact. I spoke with Kim Gaddy, who is with Clean Water Action, an environmental justice organizer and is the founding member of the New Jersey Environmental Justice Alliance. She was chair of Cory Booker's first environmental commission when he was the mayor of Newark. And more importantly, she's a fourth generation citizen of Newark who has three children with asthma, who has seen a city that has just been ravaged by pollution and has caused serious health impacts of the people who live there. So they have like 20,000 trucks a day. It's the third largest port. You know, tens of thousands of cars that go back and forth in and out. And so she's been working on this for 12 years through three governor's administrations and has gone, you know, muni to muni to talk to cities about ordinances to try to really focus very locally on an issue that has a much global, more global impact. And she said, This is really a culmination of a governor. So Governor Murphy made a promise when he was running that he would do this. So a governor with leadership and political will, a legislature willing to pass strong legislation, and a regulatory body in the Department of Environmental Protection that was also willing to hold companies' feet to the fire and make sure that they're not allowed of any sources of air pollution, whether it's a gas-fired power plant, a cogen facility, incinerators, sewage treatment, transfer stations. They have a lot of these in Newark. Recycling facilities, scrap metal, landfills, anything that has air and other toxic impacts has to be taken into consideration. This is a big deal, and and it's binding. Well, it's certainly a big deal. I mean, I think that that one of the things that I struggle with with these kinds of bills is that, you know, it feels to me like these bills are absolutely the right thought process in terms of, you know, what we should be thinking through. But I'm curious, like, the the activities that they're trying to uh, move are not being restricted, right? So it's not like they don't want a place to process sewage, or they don't want a place to process recycling, or they don't want a place to generate power. They just don't want it in these neighborhoods. So now the question becomes, how do we get here? And does this actually solve any problems? Right? Because I mean, as someone who invests in facilities that kind of look like this on the sustainability side of things, right, like massive recycling facilities or massive anaerobic digesters that often have 
25 trucks a day going to them. The question becomes, what do you, what do, you do differently, right? Do you say, well, we're not going to put it in New Jersey now. We're going to put it in Pennsylvania. And now the trucks basically drive through New Jersey via the highway all the way to Pennsylvania. And so now you've got more vehicle miles traveled. Or do you say, well, maybe this isn't actually an environmental justice issue at all. And maybe it's an affordable housing issue, right? When you think about when these facilities were sited in the 1930s and 40s in these places, no one lived next to them. But then after decades of racist sort of redlining practices by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and other people, um, a lot of communities were forced to move next to these facilities because that's where they could find affordable housing, right? And now they are sort of, um, you know, like play-spaced next to these facilities And if you're going to build a new facility, well, why would you build it in some neighborhood that hasn't had it before and is going to have a huge blowback? You'd put it in a neighborhood that currently has a lot of truck traffic already, right? And so so I want to make sure that I understand whether this law really solves the problem or just makes a bunch of people feel better. It's such a thought-provoking response, Jigger. I mean, clearly this is a huge and fundamental piece of solving the problem. But I never really thought about it in the way that you framed it, which is these sites have to go somewhere. It's better that they're not going to the communities that are already facing this cumulative impact. But really, maybe it's about figuring out how to site these facilities in a cleaner way in areas where they're already zoned for and then find better ways to get people in neighborhoods that are far away from these facilities in the first place. And that is very much a housing issue. And the problem we see is that in richer, typically whiter communities, people are often fighting against affordable housing, even among people who are supposedly progressive and, you know, in theory should support affordable housing. You see a lot of people get blocked out for that reason. So the same people who have the money and the power to keep these facilities out of their neighborhoods are also often keeping affordable housing out of their neighborhoods, too. So it's a real problem. Yeah, I'm fighting. I'm fighting all these signs in my neighborhood where they have they say communities, not canyons, because they don't want affordable housing in, in our, our neighborhood in Bethesda. But like, look, I think, um, I, I, I just think we have to think through how we holistically solve the problem, right? Because the other thing I would say is that like for Generate, at least, we're not regulated through a monopoly license, right? And so, so when you have industries that are like a wastewater treatment plant, right, they have a monopoly license, they have a requirement to, to treat the sewage in their community. If... If there is a way, as I think Catherine suggested, to be able to reduce pollution on these overburdened communities, um, but it costs an extra $100 million, well, they can sort of do it. They can just say, well, we're going to spend the extra $100 million, reduce pollution for these overburdened communities, and we'll just pass it along in higher sewage fees to all the residents, right? But like Generate doesn't have that capacity, right? We get tipping fees from... Um, you know, the New York City Sanitation Department, you know, for taking the waste. And then we have renewable natural gas markets that are volatile and you know, merchant in nature with the low carbon fuel standard credits in California. And so if for whatever reason, we were asked to spend an extra $15 million to reduce our burden in the community, um, well, there's no place for us to recover that uh, money, right? So we would basically probably just pack up shop and move somewhere else, right? And so I think it's important for all of us to just understand that, On the one hand, 
we want these services. We want the chemicals that come out of these facilities. We want the products, right? Like we certainly love buying whatever it is we buy from Amazon that comes from straight from China that probably, you know, has even worse pollution. Um, but, but we also want communities that, you know, where we don't have three times the asthma rate of the normal population, right? Or the overall population. So I just, I worry that this particular law is more of a band-aid than a holistic solution to the problem. The other thing I'd say is when I read the law, it seemed like there was a get out of jail free card in the law so that there was all this process. But then in the end, if the Department of Environmental Quality, um, you know, thought it was an essential facility, they could just override the process and say, you get a permit. Right. Well, first of all, Jigger, holistic solutions are not America's forte. So let's not (laughs) not pretend that uh, we're going to get some magical holistic solution. But I think this is a really important start Mm -hmm. and clearly one piece of the broader picture. Uh, A very important law. Uh, The Band-Aid piece or the sorry, the backdoor piece that you just mentioned is is significant and I think has greater consequences after the election. So we all know that Trump's EPA is now designed to allow polluters to pollute more. It is really an agency now set up to help industry get away from environmental regulations under the Trump administration. And so if the EPA decides it wants to issue a permit for one of these plants, it can go ahead and do that. And that could look very different under a Trump EPA versus a Biden EPA. Yes, that is very true. But remember Cory Booker, who was the mayor of Newark? Well, he's now in the Senate. And he uh, introduced a bill called the Environmental Justice Legacy Pollution Cleanup Act. And this builds on his work in New Jersey. And while New Jersey provides a model for other states, this takes those learnings and would put it toward the federal government. So it would invest a lot of funds to clean up toxic sites that are still, you know, abandoned coal mines and brownfields, for example. It would give grants to clean up lead-based paint and other housing and uh, health and safety hazards, um, especially in low-income in tribal communities, you know, it would it would replace lead drinking water lines. It would do a lot of those providing resources to the communities while also putting in place this prohibition of air, air pollution permits um, from the EPA. And so this is one of those bills that is being thought through. It's been introduced in the House and Senate. And certainly if you have leadership in those bodies that um, really care about this and want to get it done, that is something you'd be able to get done with a Democratic Senate and House and President. Well, I'll wrap up by giving a very enthusiastic nod to the environmental justice groups who have been fighting for decades and decades to make something like this happen and to try to raise awareness about this issue. Uh, Ingrid brought up some old reporting from the mid-90s talking about uh, the efforts in New Jersey and elsewhere. And, you know, (laughs) back in the 90s, they were talking about how these groups were working for decades to try to get laws like this passed. So this is a long hard fight. And a law like this, although imperfect, is certainly a really important start. So we'll see how it starts to influence other states going forward. Let's go to a tech story, solar plus hydro. We just love solar plus anything stories. That's how we get our clicks, folks. So um, the U.S. Department of Energy says that placing solar farms, floating solar farms on reservoirs around the world is actually a really good idea. DOE says hybrid systems of floating solar panels added to hydropower plants could have the potential to produce 40% of global electricity each year. Now, 
That's technical potential. That's not necessarily economic potential. So bear that in mind when you hear such a grandiose number. The research found that by constructing solar panels on the surface of hydro reservoirs and feeding the power they generate into the same substation, both energy sources might become cheaper, more efficient, and more reliable. So how much promise does this offer for solar and for hydro? Catherine, you talked to the author of this report. What did you hear? Yeah, so exactly what you said about this being a really optimistic estimate. This is just about technology potential, but boy, is it cool. You have all of these dams out there, 379,000 hydro wet reservoirs globally. Um, And then if you combine solar floating PV, um, FPV, they call it, um, it just combined provides so many benefits and that it what what Nathan Lee said to me who led this report was that the most interesting thing is all these that it's not a novel technology because those technologies floating PV has been out there for a while um, you know PV has been used in marine settings for quite a long time and then hydro of course is quite old but it's the consolidated operational benefits and this novel application that he said was really really interesting so it reduces evaporation from those reservoirs it increases efficiency it reduces algae growth it eliminates the need for land use because you're using water. It is particularly helpful in in Southeast Asia and South America where they're very dependent on hydropower. And there's an issue of if you have a dry season, you just can't get enough out of it. And with solar, you're able to add a lot more to the facility. And then during rainy seasons, you can use your hydro and not have to use the PV as much, which won't be as useful. So what you end up doing is having a real dispatchable power plant uh, with 24-7 seasonal capacity and potentially being able to participate in every market. Now, the market issue is something totally different, but from a from an application standpoint, it's super interesting. So, Jigger, the resource potential is vast. What do you think is economic? What's possible here when you consider what they're proposing in this report? Yeah, I think, um, so where to start? So one of my good friends, uh, Richard Perez, right, at SUNY Albany, um, used to have this beautiful chart around the potential energy production of each each thing, and one of the things he said was you could you could power the entire state of New York from the land that was wasted in lakes behind hydro dams. So I think we want to first start by saying that hydro has caused a tremendous amount of land to be wasted, right? That is what we're talking about here, right? Is we're talking about these beautiful lakes that are basically like wasted land because a river or something has been dammed up and a lake was created, right? So now we're basically taking uh, an environmental disaster and then putting solar on top of this environmental disaster. I think the second piece of it is, look, I think the technology works, right? I mean, we've tested it in many places. Japan has over 1,400 megawatts of solar PV on lakes, uh, you know. Flotovoltaics. <laughs> exactly. I don't know that I'm ever going to get used to that word. Um, <laughs> and and the reason it worked was because, you know, they had feed-in tariffs at like 26 or 30 cents a kilowatt hour for power, right? And so at those prices, flotovoltaics definitely uh, works. I think that when you look at, utility scale solar, right? So some of these plants are getting large. They're like 100 megawatts floating in a body of water. You're talking about ground-based solar projects coming in at less than two cents a kilowatt hour 
in many places around the world, you know, let's call it three cents just to be generous. And these photovoltaic facilities are probably at seven or eight cents a kilowatt hour. And they might even be closer to 10 cents a kilowatt hour, right? So they're not they're not that close to the same cost as as ground-based systems. So now the question becomes, what other benefits do you get? And I think Catherine was right. You know, algae formation gets arrested. Um, you know, like in California, they actually just drop black balls into lakes to try to reduce evaporation, right? So instead of black plastic balls, like, yes, maybe put some PV in there, right? But what's it worth, to have less evaporation, right? Like how much would, are you willing to pay for it? Are you willing to pay double the cost of electricity from three cents to let's say six cents a kilowatt hour? I don't know, right? The one thing I would say is the most interesting thing about this has nothing to do with the, the solar PV. To me, what's most interesting is how weak our hydro developers are in this country, Right, you literally have report after report after report about how we have twenty eight thousand, forty seven thousand non powered dams or dams that we built back in the nineteen twenties, and like, I think it's like closer to two thousand. No, 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 it's like it's it's like it's almost a hundred thousand dams that are operating or non powered dams that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has built just to control water flows, and these are all grandfathered, right? It's really hard to get a new dam permit in the United States. But these are all grandfathered because they were built in the 1910, 1920s, 1930s, right? And there's all these reports from the DOE saying, if we powered the non-powered dams, or if we actually upgraded the previously powered dams, we could power 10% of the country. You could see how solar PV developers are far better than hydro developers. And they actually could unlock the hydro potential while building some solar photovoltaics behind the hydro dams. So my sense is, is that the biggest aha moment to come out of this report is that solar PV developers who are bored with just doing standard ground-mounted solar PV might actually help our good friend Malcolm Wolf at the National Hydropower Association get some world-class developers into his industry. And just to clarify the statistics there, I th- I was referencing an old report from, I think, 2006 or 2007. It was from the Idaho National Laboratory, and they said there were probably 1,800 dams where you could uh, add run-of-river hydro facilities and sort of dramatically increase hydropower. And almost none of that activity has taken place, by the way. So. Oh, yeah. No, that's a, and that's a small subset of dams right. around the country, right? And so... And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has actually accelerated permitting. So you can actually get an old dam re-permitted for new equipment in six months. And so so the, the there's wide bipartisan support for supporting the nation's dams and waterways. And I think that if you could get solar PV developers who have proven themselves to be more wily and persistent than hydro uh, dam developers um, interested in this area then this entire photovoltaic report will have been worth it. <laughs> yeah, it definitely unlocks so much potential for for those hydro plants. So it seems like they, they both have something to win from that. And, and while it has a higher CapEx cost, the operational cost is much, much lower. And you're unlocking all these other services. So finally, this is one of the things that was always really attractive to me about solar. You can put it on lots of things, right? You, uh, I think... Carports are an obvious choice. You have photovoltaics. 
there's all sorts of existing built infrastructure that you can potentially put solar panels on. Obviously, the cost increases because of you know changing racking and mounting needs, etc. But in theory, you can put solar on lots of places where we already have infrastructure. What other uses of solar plus or solar on kind of unique facilities have you seen Jigger or Catherine like that we should be thinking about? So we're looking at um, really big projects right now where they're wrapping 360 degrees around a pole for light poles um, with sort of a more facilicon, you know, uh, was it perscovites and some of that stuff like around the pole um, and that can power the pole. Right. So I think there's actually a lot of these, you know, I think for a while we looked at it around, if you remember, they were like sewing it into jackets and that kind of stuff. But I think the more practical application or backpacks or whatever, I think the more practical application of actually getting used is um, around these light poles. And there are millions of these light poles around the country. And they did that in New Jersey, uh, Petrosolar, right? In 2007, they had a they put solar panels on like every utility pole around New Jersey. Yeah, I wouldn't want to use that as a case study. Half of those solar panels are pointing the wrong direction, but those were <laughs> but those were actual like flat solar panels on the top. This one is actually you know like a sleeve that's wrapped around the pole, so the pole itself actually generates the power, um, and it's. It's beautiful looking, and it saves a ton of money because, you know, the amount of electricity those light poles use is very small, but it costs, you know, $10,000 to trench the sidewalk and the road to connect that particular location to power. Um, And so being able to just stick something into the ground is much cheaper. Um, Yeah, no, so we've seen a lot of interesting um, approaches to to using solar. uh, And, you know, and like, I mean, I also think like we have thousands of miles in this country of canals, for instance. So instead of actually floating solar in the canals, a lot of people are saying it's actually cheaper just to bridge the canal, right? So it's basically building a carport over the canals and then reducing evaporation that way and putting solar panels on top of uh, on top of those. Um, so I agree with you. The form factor of solar is important. But I, the one place I would just caution everybody is while it's awesome and interesting and certainly clickbait on um, social media to talk about these things, um, you know, we have been talking about how many parking spaces we have in this country and how easy it is to cover them all with carports for many years. And people haven't done it because it is not in the public interest to do it, right? It may be in the public interest because we're not using land where you're cutting down Joshua trees, but in terms of actually incentivizing carports to be the preferred route for solar developers, that hasn't happened in any state that I really know of. So I think it's important to note that while this stuff is interesting, a lot of regulators haven't said, well, we're going to reimburse this particular application at a higher price because it reduces the amount of land that gets used um, you know, compared to a, an alternative approach. Okay, that brings us to the free electrons. Catherine, what are you thinking about, reading about? Yes, I was pointed to, by the World Economic Forum, to a new framework they have developed about system value. So this is trying to make sure that we look beyond cost, much more into value, and to trying to create this system value framework that includes much broader economic, technical, environmental, and energy system values 
um, into which, which a particular technology or approach could offer. And they've looked at six markets, Brazil, China, Europe, India, South Africa, and the US, and looked at, you know, what are the what is going to be delivered? What kind of value? Is it jobs, air quality, flexibility, system resilience? And this is something a lot of us have been working on for a long time, but it's great to see the World Economic Forum putting some real resources into this and Accenture doing a lot of work to create a framework that they think is very flexible, but that a lot of country heads might really take advantage of and be able to use in a way that is specific to what they have, the resources they have and the needs that they have in their countries. And speaking of the World Economic Forum, I've also been asked to co-chair. I took a year off last year, but I've been asked to co-chair with Adam Saminsky, who used to run the US EIA and now is the head of CAPSARC, the Saudi um, research organization. Uh, We are co-chairing a clean electrification council. And we've been able to recruit the likes of Saul Griffith and Leah Stokes and Jared Reed and so many other amazing people. So I'm super excited to be working on clean electrification. And hopefully this framework will help us uh, point to something. That's awesome. I feel like the electrification piece is really picking up. Yeah, it's great. Jigger, what's your free electron? All right. Well... I've got two, so I'm pulling a Catherine. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, so today, the International Energy Agency and uh, Catherine's good friend, you know, Fatih Barol, as well as OPEC, have come out with their oil forecasts. And they're basically, for the first time ever, saying that oil demand, in their opinion, is in terminal decline and that by 2040 it will make up less than 20% of global power supply for the first time since the industrial revolution. Sorry, this is oil and coal. And it's it's dramatic, right? The International Energy Agency was created to help the world have better information on oil because it was, you know, not well informed uh, during the Arab oil crisis. And for them to actually say that this is possible on the heels of the BP energy review saying that we were at peak demand or peak supply, however you want to define it, is, I think, a sea change and will lead to even more changes in terms of the way in which people view oil companies and the future growth of oil. So I think uh, that's a shocking thing. The other one I wanted to talk about was China's new fuel cell policy. This actually is a little bit old. I think it was announced about six or eight weeks ago, but I just forgot to talk about it. But China is is now saying that they're targeting a million fuel cell electric vehicles on China's roads by 2030. And they have an entire policy and Ballard and many others are, you know, racing into China as well as Europe with their new, their green deal. And they're also saying that 50% of all the hydrogen that gets used by these vehicles has to come from renewable energy. So I feel like it's another one of China's investments to really bring down the cost of technology in the same way that they led on electric vehicles, right? I mean, China still boasts 90% of all electric vehicles in the world. And, you know, we like to talk about just a few thousand here in the United States, but I mean, they've got, you know, like tens of thousands of buses, et cetera, that are electric in China. You mentioned this when we talked about Nikola Motor Company, but just so that we're not confusing people, can you explain what you mean when you say fuel cell electric vehicle? Yeah, so it means that that there's a fuel cell on board, and that fuel cell is providing electricity in a, like, charger mode to a battery, 
right? So it is always the case that the vehicle actually runs on a battery, just like any other electric vehicle. But the battery may only have 40 miles of range. And then you have a fuel cell that's constantly uh, refueling it. Uh, what people have called in the past a series hybrid. Um, and so, so you know, you get more range extension and a faster refueling cycle by being able to just put in more hydrogen in the tank than uh, having to plug it in and charge it that way. So my free electron comes from friend of the show, Tyler Norris. Tyler is at Cypress Creek Solar, a major solar developer, and he's a former DOE advisor. He's there in North Carolina, and he on Twitter pointed to a report from the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association showing that in a state like North Carolina, new renewable energy projects are driving a nearly 2,000% average increase in annual tax revenue per parcel, which is an extraordinary new source of revenue for uh, rural communities. And this is yet again one of the reasons why on a local level renewable energy is typically not partisan at all. And a lot of leaders have recognized this. They've known it for a long time. Back in 2019, we produced this episode with the Energy News Network profiling a guy named Bob Steinberg, who is a Republican North Carolina state senator who won a primary campaign. And he has been a Republican out in front on North Carolina's clean energy policies. And this is exactly his message. He went and he toured a major wind project in a portion of the state many years ago that Amazon was partnering with. It was contracting energy from. He went and toured it and saw the economic impact it was having and became a convert. And in his state Senate race, he ran against a guy who called him Bob the Solar Weenie, who really like called him a lot of names and played up the fact that he was a supporter of renewable energy. And Bob won his race and he is now out front. And he's the kind of Republican who is seeing these numbers, like the one that Tyler Norris pointed out, and saying, this stuff is really good for our state. Let's develop as much of it as we possibly can. Rise up solar weenies, man. (laughs) I am a proud solar weenie. Um, We we need need (laughs) t-shirts. But um, no, I mean, I think the wind energy industry paid about $350 $350 million a year last year um, in solar leases, right? So, and they continue, they plan to pay that for 20 plus years. And the solar industry is rapidly hitting the same number in terms of what they pay for um, their leases. And so this is real money for many of these, you know, local communities, um, real money for their budgets. I'm a solar hydro weenie. <laughs> <laughs> a photovoltaic weenie. <laughs> All hail solar weenies. <laughs> the Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my wonderful co-hosts, and uh, I'm the executive producer. Thanks for listening. If you want to show your support and help us grow, send out the word on social media. Tell us what you liked about the show, what we got wrong. We love to hear your feedback. Or send a link to a friend or colleague to uh, see if they would benefit from this show. Even better, give us a rating and review on Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. We will be with you next week, as always. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon. 